As a child, I was tormented by nightmares. It lasted throughout my childhood and into my early teens. I was 13 years old when my dad sat down with me and helped me to memorize a sentence from the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So dad helped me to memorize this verse. And then he told me to say this verse out loud as the dark nights were making me afraid. And not just to say it, but to learn that it's true and to believe it. And it worked because God's word is powerful and it is true and it does teach us what's really true. The nightmares stopped dominating my life. Now, I still have nightmares occasionally. I'll go months and months without any fearful kind of dreams, but they still poke around and I still have to practice the faith of a child loving and trusting my heavenly father that what he says is more true than what is overwhelming me in the night. Twice in this past week I've had nightmares. Uh, one was last night. And so in the middle of the night, I woke up Janelle and I asked her to put her hand on me because I was scared. When you're in the middle of a nightmare, it can seem so real, so powerful, so horrible that when you wake up, you, you hardly know what's true and what's not true. In that moment, when you wake up, it's confusing. And, 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 and knowing that that's just a nightmare doesn't always happen, right? You, you feel this. You, and in those moments when this kind of clash of dream and reality happens, it's disorienting. It's hard to tell which is which. There are living nightmares that some of you are living through. And we've seen that the church here in the book of Revelation is about to live through a nightmare. We've seen that over the last several weeks. We've seen in chapters 2 and 3, God the Father loving the church by sitting down with the church and saying, here's what you're about to go through. It's going to be very scary. And it is going to be disorienting. You are about to go through a stunning, bewildering, devastating, deadly persecution. And you have to be ready for it. And so what, what happens in the book of Revelation, we saw last week, is that in chapters 4 and in chapters 5, the loving father is sitting with his children and he's saying to them an ancient version of this. Have you seen stranger things? There is an upside down world. There is, except in, in Revelation, the upside down world is the right side up world. If you haven't watched it, I'm sorry, that's your, I haven't either because I get scared. Janelle and I tried to watch it halfway through the first episode. The boy riding his bike in the woods, I was like, I know what this is going to do to me tonight. <laughs> so I didn't watch it, but my children and some other pagan adults in our church... 
have all watched it, and they've told me there's this upside-down world. In the book of Revelation, the upside-down world is heaven. It's the real world. And so what God does in chapters 4 and 5 is he says, look, you're about to go through persecution. And in chapters 4 and 5, he says, there is more to reality than what you are going to see and feel and taste and touch. There is another reality that even though you can't see it, it's real. It's called heaven, and it overlaps and interlocks with earth, and it, it, it's bound up with earth, and you, all, you won't always be able to see the heavenly dimension. We talked a lot about this last week. Now, what happens in chapters 6, 7, and 8 is God begins to show these churches the events they've been experiencing and the events they're about to experience from the dimension of heaven. So for example, I didn't have time to show you this last week, but Revelation chapter 5 is Acts chapter 1 from heaven's point of view. In Acts chapter 1, from earth's point of view, Jesus ascends. In Revelation chapter 5, from heaven's point of view, the Lamb arrives. So what you have in Acts chapter 5 is is in Revelation chapter 5, is a retelling of what happened about 30 years prior, but from the perspective of heaven. And then in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, he carries on with this. Why is he doing this? In the same, for the same reason that my dad sat down with me and knew that I was going to continue to have nightmares. But he wanted to give me a way that when I woke up in the night, I could know the truth. So God is saying to them, you're about to go through something that is going to bewilder you. It's going to disorient you. I want you in the midst of it to know what's really happening. So if you have a Bible, find Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Here's the deal. The horse is the church, and the rider is the Holy Spirit. This is Acts chapters 2 and three, and this is the church after Jesus ascended, riding out into the world, the Holy Spirit moving out into the world through the church in victory. That's exactly what happened 30 years before this letter was written. 30 years before this letter was written, after Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended into heaven, poured out his spirit on the church, and then the church moved out. Remember, those of you who have read the Bible, it says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The church did that. It moved out. And so here in the first writer... We see Jesus the victor as he moves into the world with the church, proclaiming the gospel, and people are coming into God's kingdom. This is the victory of the crucifixion being spread throughout the earth. And then notice what happens. Verse 4, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. 
So again, he's reviewing their past. He's showing them what it looked like from a heaven. He's telling, he's telling the history the way comic books work. He's using like cosmic figures and crazy fantastical images. What happened? As the church moved out in victory, as the Spirit of God rode the church, moved out into the world through the church, first people were coming to God and then division occurred. Many people received the good news but many people resisted it. They didn't believe it, and so there was division. When the Lamb sends the Spirit out, riding the church, the gospel has the same effect it had during the ministry of Jesus. Israel is divided in two. This was our gospel reading. Jesus told us this would happen. Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me, what's the cross you've got to take? It's being willing to love God more than your own family, more than your own nation. That's a cross to bear. Whoever's not willing to do that is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, these early Christians, they had been experiencing what so many of us in this room experience. Jesus, the divider. When you love Jesus, when you give Jesus your deepest loyalty, your highest allegiance, your non-negotiable obedience, it doesn't guarantee everybody in your family will do the same. And when there are people in the same family, and some have given their utter allegiance to King Jesus, and some haven't, Division is unavoidable. When there is a Christian in a family, and when there's a non-Christian in that same family, devastatingly painful division is unavoidable. Family loyalty and national loyalty is often at odds with real Christian loyalty. It happened in Jesus' life. Jesus said it's going to happen. And here we see these horses and riders symbolically showing the church what happened about 20 years ago in the book of Acts in chapters 3 and chapters 4 and 5 and 6 and ultimately culminating in Acts chapter 7 when Israel turned on one of its own, Stephen, and killed him for his loyalty to Jesus. Division is an inevitable consequence of the church's mission because the church bears the sword of the Spirit and swords divide. And Jesus promised us this would happen. And, in, and he's showing them that's what happened. The third seal is opened in verse 5. A black horse. Again, it's the church. And its rider had a pair of scales, this is the Spirit of God, in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. This is 
massive inflation. This is like Venezuelan inflation right now. This is many hundreds of times more than that stuff should cost. But do not harm the oil and the wine. So the church proclaims the gospel. And like Jesus promised, it produced division. Not everyone accepts Jesus as king. And what we see here with the third seal and the black horse is that God begins to impoverish those who resist the gospel. First we saw Jesus the victor. Then we saw Jesus the divider. And here we see Jesus the depleter. Wheat and barley represents Judaism. Oil and wine represents the church. And when the Jewish people resisted the message of Jesus Christ, Judaism began to diminish. And we know that in just, this was written in the early 60s, we know that in just a couple of years, Judaism is going to lose its primary resource, the temple. Judaism is losing its life-giving resources, which primarily was the temple. That's about to happen. And when the Jewish people resist Jesus, Judaism began to diminish. And it is the same today. If you resist Jesus, you will diminish. If you grow up in a family that has the oil and the wine of Christianity, and you walk away from it, you will enter an economy of massive inflation. And you will diminish. And your children will diminish. And their children will no longer be able to live on the borrowed capital of the blessings of Christianity in generations past. And that happened. And he told them that happened. And when you get to the end of the book of Acts, you see the diminishment is occurring. It's occurring. And it is the same today. When you turn away from Jesus, you turn away from the only oasis in the desert. So all that's left is diminishment. All that's left is thirst. All that's left is hunger. Jesus is life. He is the bread of life. He gave himself for the life of the world. And so to turn from him is to embrace diminishment. And then we get to the fourth horseman. We get to verse 7. When the fourth seal is opened, death comes riding out. That's what happens at the end of diminishment. Verse 8, and I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. Death is a judgment from God on those who reject Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for the life of the world. Now, th this is a self-inflicted judgment. If you reject life, you are self-inflicting death. If you have cancer and here's the chemotherapy that can give you life and you say no to it, I'm not going to do that. And if it, if it has the potential to save your life, you are embracing a self-inflicted death. This is the deal. This is a judgment that the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. And because Jesus is the bread of life, because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of life, they were rejecting life and they were embracing death. And that was the judgment. It was a self-imposed judgment. And then we get the fifth seal. There's no horse. There's no rider. Instead, we have martyrs. 
Those who've been killed because of their love for Jesus and their allegiance to him. Look at verse 9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So think about the progression of the plot. The gospel moves out in the ancient Near East. People are coming to Jesus, but not everybody does. Then that's dividing people. This follows by their diminishment. This follows by their death. And now we have Christians who have died. Christians who've died for their faith, agitating God, agitating in the temple, crying out to God, and asking for justice. You see, the followers of Jesus challenged the status quo of a world in rebellion against God. And defenders of the status quo, defenders of the world in rebellion against God, they defend the status quo murderously. And so God's enemies have been shedding holy blood to keep their world intact. And here they are. So what happens is the gospel had moved out in victory. People that created division and that led to diminishment, that led to death. And as a diminished enemy increasingly loses resources, it turns violent. And the Jewish people and the Romans have over the last couple of years been killing Christians. And so here you have the Christians crying out who've been killed to God for justice. They long for justice. Just like anyone who's been deeply wronged. I mean, you go on a playground. It's not fair, right? This is the natural human. They are, this is not a petty and spiteful cry for vengeance. This is the heartbreaking desire to see the world brought back into balance at last. They want justice and catch this. They look to the Lamb to provide it. Now this is really important for us today. The martyrs assume that the redeeming Lamb is an avenging Lamb. He's a Lamb-Lion. That's what we saw in the last couple of chapters. They assume, you see, that both redemption and vengeance are necessary for justice. This is hard work. This is hard for us today. You see, it is not enough to liberate victims from their various bondages to sin, to addiction, to oppression. We, the church, must learn from the martyrs to agitate and advocate and cry out for justice to be carried out against oppressors. When you learn to pray like Jesus, you know how Jesus learned to pray? By praying the Psalms. Because when you pray what comes naturally, it's about as good as a child singing what comes naturally. It's cute for a moment, but if it doesn't get trained, it won't get recorded and adored. Prayer does not, real prayer doesn't come natural. It has to be learned. And the church has always learned to pray by praying the Psalms and praying them so much so that they become our prayers. It's like a pianist learning the arpeggios. You just play them and play them and play them and play them until you develop that good muscle memory. And, and when Jesus prayed in the Psalms, 
He encountered over and over the cry for justice. And we prayed one of these this morning. Psalm 13. We prayed together as a group. How long, O Lord? And it's not just Psalm 13. It's Psalm 6 and 35 and 74 and 79 and 80 and 89 and 94. It goes on and on and on in the Bible. This demand of God for justice. Now, some of us are uncomfortable with this. We're uncomfortable with crying out to God for vengeance. And to be quite honest, the church's prayers are weak and anemic and sentimental and ineffective when we don't learn to pray for justice. God is good and his judgment is good. And his judgment clears out the dead wood. It blows away the chaff and it promotes the good of our city and the glory of God. We must learn to pray for justice. How? By learning the Psalms and getting next to injustice. We have to come up next to it. If your life is safely protected from the devastation of injustice... If your work and your heritage has given you a ticket out of the ghettos of the world, if if your work doesn't take you into the wasteland of injustice, if your house, the place where you live, does not place you among the victims of injustice, then you must find a way to get there. Volunteer with first step. Or Mercy House. Or get involved in our public school system. Find out what's going on in our overcrowded jails. Help out at AvaCare. You have got to get so close to the pain and the suffering and the injustices that waste lives in our world that you too begin to cry out for God to bring vengeance. If you've never cried out for vengeance, it's not because you're holy. It's because you're safe. We have got to learn from the martyrs to agitate God. To cry out to God. Why? Because if God does not avenge the martyrs, then there is reason to doubt He is God. If God is true, then He will act. If he does not deal with justice, he, with injustice, he is neither true, nor holy, nor God. That is our job. We have to do this. Listen to what happens in response to these prayers. Notice what happens to these martyrs in verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now look, if you were writing this book, is that what you, is that how you would answer the people crying out, the victims of injustice? Would you tell them, wait, we need more? See, this is one of the moments you know God wrote the book and not some white American. Because this is not the move in the plot any of us would have seen coming. He does this strange thing. What does he say? He says, wait, rest. I've got to let the cup of injustice fill up. The goblet is not full of blood yet. And that brings us to the sixth seal. 
When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. In response to the prayers of the martyrs, God says, wait, there has to be more martyrs. And then he begins to rip the world apart. He begins to tear down the world as it existed. And we know from, from history, that's what happened in the mid to late 60s. All hell began to break loose across the Middle East. Now this language about the sun turning black and the moon becoming like blood and the stars falling from heaven and so on, this was their way of saying earth-shattering events have happened. In fact, this happened in America when the two towers fell. People reached out and used this kind of language. And they said things like, the world is coming apart. That, that's what this means here. What begins to happen is God begins to rip up the socio-political reality of the ancient Near East. In other words, what is going on is that God is letting evil do its worst. Reach its full height. So that it can be ripe for judgment. God will not judge until the world is fully and thoroughly deserving of it. So God begins the judgment. And then in verse 3, he stops it. He begins, to ag- he begins to agitate the world. He begins to break down the Greco-Roman Empire, the Jewish... He begins to break it all down. But then in chapter 7, verse 3, he stops. He stops like in the middle of him judging. Look what it says. He, he calls everything off. He says, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, just follow the plot and you can see this. So the martyrs cry out. God says, wait, wait. But then he begins to act in judgment. Then he holds back until 144,000 are sealed. That's just symbolic language for saying a whole lot of Jews are going to convert. 12,000 times 12,000 times 12,000. 12 means complete. Until, the, until this completion, this conversion occurs, and then a lot of Jews are about to be killed who have declared allegiance to God. That's what he means by being sealed. Their service of prayer and witness will lead them to dying for the Lamb. And then... Look what happens in chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, was standing before the throne. Now drop down to verse 14. And I said, and and he's asked, verse 13, who are these people? And I said, sir, you know. And he said, these are those coming out of the great tribulation. What's happened is they've been martyred, and now they're arriving in heaven. Remember in chapter 6, verse 11, I'm not going to act until the full number of martyrs is kind of happened. And now, then you get these 144,000 martyrs, and when they arrive in heaven, notice what happens. Verse 10, verse 9, at the end of it, they're clothed in white robes, this, this crowd with palm branches in their hand, they begin to crowd a loud voice. When in the Bible do we see God's people with palm branches crying out in a loud voice? Does anybody know? The triumphal entry. When the martyrs arrive in heaven, heaven treats the martyrs the way Jerusalem treated Jesus on his path to martyrdom. 
They raise the palm branches and they declare the praises of God. The, the, the martyrs arrive in heaven and all of heaven breaks into this worship. They're worshiping the lamb. They're praising him. Now look at verse 13. The elder said, who are these? He said, sir, you know, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. Isn't that amazing? A sheep becomes a shepherd. Psalm 23, he guides them to living waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Notice the martyrs experience the lamb's compassion. But those who rejected God hid from the Lamb's wrath. The Bible doesn't let us get one without the other. We like the idea of a compassionate Lamb, but right in the same chapter, right in the same book, given to us by God, we see you get to pick a fearful, wrathful Lamb that you will cry out to the stones, stone me, kill me, don't let me face a wrath. Or you get to be in this other crowd, this crowd that gets to stand before Jesus and he himself comes and wipes the tears from their eyes. Remember, this is a letter written to these small Christian communities that are about to go through a nightmare. And here is God loving his children, showing them that if they persevere, if they maintain their allegiance to the king, even at the price of their own life, even at the price of their own children not liking them, even at the price of their siblings thinking they're just a little too radical, even at the price of their spouse turning against them, if you persevere in loyalty to King Jesus, you will stand in the presence of the living God and God himself will welcome you in his presence and will shelter you with his presence. And that brings us to chapter 8. So look what's happened. He's comforting these churches by reviewing what happened over the last 20 years, but then taking them into what's about to happen over the next five to seven to eight years. And he's saying, no, you're going to go through this. But here's the real story behind it. On the ground, you're just going to feel like you're getting your teeth kicked in. You're going to feel like you're getting picked on. But all of heaven knows what's going on. And then we get to chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. This is the first time we've experienced a praiseless heaven. A silent heaven. Right up till now, every time we see heaven, it's like they're breaking out into music and they're singing and they're praising and they're praying and all of this. But suddenly heaven hushes. Why does heaven hush? Well, notice what it says. I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. In the silence, this is what's happening. So think about this. The praises of heaven pause. So that the prayers for justice can be given a proper hearing. So that the prayers of the earth can be heard before the throne of the Lamb. Once the number of martyrs is full, 
Once you go through this difficult next few years, once evil is risen to its full height, heaven will hush and the prayer for vengeance will be received. And then notice what happens next. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning. Heaven comes to earth and the judgment starts. Now we're going to see in the weeks ahead how this actually plays out. He's just giving a little preview. He's saying that once all the martyr's blood is shed over the next couple of years, God's going to pay attention and when it reaches his limit, the king is coming to earth. Judgment is going to occur. And we're going to talk about how that's going to play out over the next several weeks. We've run out of time, so let me just draw your attention to the way the whole plot finishes, because it's the same as last week. We've come to the end of our section this week, and just like last week, it ends by drawing our attention to prayer. Church of the Incarnation. It is desperately important that we learn to believe in heaven. That it is overlapping and interlocking. That more than stranger things knows, there is another dimension. And prayers cross the threshold. And go back to chapter 6 verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice. Is that how you pray? They cried out. This isn't some kind of deistic. Like I just kind of say my prayers like I take my vitamins. That word cried out. It's not a whisper. It's a screech. It is a loud cry. It is all that blood and all that injustice beating on the door of heaven and demanding justice. That's the work of the church. I'm not saying we've got to yell and scream when we pray. But our hearts have got to be all in it. Where is the brokenness in our city? Have you bumped into it? Has it driven you to cry out for justice? What is it that we must be calling on God to heal. If your job doesn't take you to the pain, if your house doesn't put you in the pain, if you are not next to the brokenness of this city, you have to find a way to get there until it becomes a prayer, until it becomes a cry. Now, we've come to the time in our service where that's our job. We're about to stand up and we've got to act like priests. And our job for the next few minutes in this service is to bring the injustice of this city and the brokenness of this world to God and demand that he acts and ask him to move and to fix it because if he doesn't, he is not true and he is not holy and he is not God. And our prayer life depends on believing that. So please stand and let's act like priests.